welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. What did the 19th century author Lydia Sigourney, the 18th century hero-turned-traitor Benedict Arnold, and the Revolutionary War Battle of Bunker Hill have in common? They all come together in the story you're about to hear from Sigourney's 1824 book, Sketch of Connecticut, 40 Years Since. Sigourney's book, written early in her career, is a rare historical treat, a tale by a future famous writer written in 1824, reminiscing about life 40 years earlier in 1784. The past remembering the past, coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. The poet and author Lydia Sigourney, known during her lifetime as the Sweet Singer of Hartford, is one of Connecticut's most famous, though today least read, literary figures. During her lifetime, the Norwich-born poet and author became the country's most widely known female writer, publishing 52 books and poems and stories in over 300 publications. Her moralistic writing, often on themes of death, duty and responsibility, and the importance of religious faith, reflected the sensibilities of most middle-class Americans during the first half of the 19th century. Her commitment to female education, writing, and charity made her a role model. She inspired many young women to attempt their own literary achievements. Born Lydia Howard Huntley in the market town of Norwich, Connecticut in 1791, as a young girl, her social and educational development was advanced by a widowed neighbor, Jerusha Talcott Lathrop, through whom she came to meet Hartford arts patron Daniel Wadsworth. Wadsworth was instrumental both in helping Sigourney set up a school for girls and in publishing her first book in 1815. After she married Charles Sigourney in 1819, she wrote anonymously and in her leisure time, devoting herself primarily to her duties as a wife. But after the family began experiencing financial distress, she practiced writing as an occupation under the name Mrs. Sigourney. In this episode, we're going to hear a story from one of Sigourney's early publications, Sketch of Connecticut, 40 Years Since, a book published in Hartford in 1824. This book is of special interest not only because of its author, but because of the unusual insight into life in early Connecticut it provides. Throughout the book, we have an author from the year 1824 recounting events that occurred in and around 1784, just after the end of the American Revolution. Thus, we see the past through a double historical lens. The book is located in the town of Norwich and is focused on the events surrounding the life of Widow L, undoubtedly Sigourney's mentor, Widow Jerusha Lathrop. I have chosen portions of the first and second chapters which provide stage-setting glimpses into early American Norwich and the character of Widow L before turning to the chapter describing Widow L's 1784 conversation with Captain Anderson, a disabled veteran from the American Revolution. 
Anderson's tale provides a novel insight into the ways in which Norwich remembered its native son and revolutionary patriot-turned-traitor Benedict Arnold, as well as providing a believable eyewitness account of the 1775 Battle of Bunker Hill. Equally interesting is the criticism the author renders in 1824 of the treatment of Revolutionary War veterans in her own day and in the earliest days of the American Republic, as we're moving toward the 250th anniversary of the War for Independence in 2025, this is a story especially worth noting. Sketch of Connecticut 40 Years Since by Lydia Sigourney, Hartford, 1824. Not far from where the southern limits of Connecticut meet the waters of the sea, the town of Norwich is situated. As you approach from the west, it exhibits a rural aspect of meadows intersected by streams and houses overshadowed with trees. Viewed from the eastern acclivity, it seems like a citadel guarded by parapets of rock and embosomed in an amphitheater of hills whose summits mark the horizon with a waving line of dark forest green. Entering at this avenue, you perceive that its habitations bear few marks of splendor, but many of them, retiring behind the shelter of lofty elms, exhibit the appearance of comfort and respectability. Traveling southward about two miles through the principal road, the rural features of the landscape are lost in the throng of houses and hustle of men the junction of two considerable streams here forms a beautiful river which receiving the tides of the sea rushes with a short course into its bosom. Masts peer over warehouses and streets rise above streets with such irregularity that the base of one line of buildings sometimes overlooks the roofs of another. Here man, incessantly combating the obstacles of nature, is content to hang his dwelling upon her rocks, if he may but gather the treasures of her streams. Yet spots of brightness and of beauty occur amid these eagle nests upon the cliff. Gardens of flowers, bold and romantic shores, pure, broad, sparkling waters, white sails dancing at the will of the breeze, boats gliding beneath bridges or between islands of verdure with sportive and graceful motion like the slight gossamer in the sunbeam. Between these two sections of the town, which though sisters bear no family resemblance, is a landscape which some writer of romance might be pleased to describe. It is about a mile from the mouth of the smallest of the two streams just mentioned, which, winding its way through green meadows with a mild course, is fringed with the willow and many aquatic shrubs bending their drooping branches to kiss its noiseless tide. Through these scenes of odiferous wildness, Madame L. often wandered and like our first mother amused herself by removing whatever marred its beauty and cherishing all that heightened its excellence. Her alert step and animated aspect would scarcely permit the beholder to believe that the weight of almost 70 years oppressed her. 
though the spectacles that aided her in distinguishing weeds from plants proved that time had not spared to levy some tribute upon his favorite. Her fair, open forehead, clear, expressive blue eye, and finely shaped countenance displayed that combination of intellect with sensibility which marked her character. A tall and graceful person whose symmetry age had respected gave dignity to a deportment which the sorrows of life had softened. A vein of playful humor had been natural to her youth and might still occasionally be detected in her quick smile and kindling eye. Yet this was divested of every semblance of asperity by the spirit of a religion breathing love to all mankind. Her voice had that peculiar and exquisite tone which seems an echo of the soul's harmony. Her brow was circled with thin folds of the purest cambric whose whiteness was contrasted with the broad black ribbon which compressed them and the kerchief of the same color pinned in quaint and Quaker-like neatness over her bosom. Her countenance in its silence spoke the language of peace within, goodwill to all around, and the sublimated joy of one whose kingdom is not of this world. Her liberality was proverbial. She loved the poor and the sick as if they were unfortunate members of her own family. To afford them relief was not a deed of ostentation, but a source of heartfelt delight. Our sketch commences at the opening of the year 1784. Winter had subtracted from the charms of the landscape by substituting for its variegated garniture a robe of uniform hue. The War of Revolution, which for a long period had drained the resources of the country, had been terminated for a space of somewhat more than two years. The British colonies of America were numbered among the nations. The first tumults of joy subsiding discovered a government not organized and resting upon insecure foundations. Gold might be discovered among the materials of the future temple, but the hand of a refiner was needed to purge the dross and take away all the tin. Light had sprung from chaos, but the voice of the architect had not yet caused the dayspring to know his place. In Connecticut, the agitation which pervaded the general council of the nation was unknown. The body of the people trusted in the wisdom of those heroes and sages of whom they had furnished their proportion. They believed that the hands which had been strengthened to lay the foundation of their liberty amid the tempest of war would be enabled to complete the fabric beneath the smiles of peace. In gratitude and quietness of spirit, they rested beneath the shadow of their own vine, and had they possessed no law, would have been a law unto themselves. We return to Norwich, which might be considered at this period the stronghold of steady habits and moderated desires. Madame L. felt a deep interest in those soldiers who had borne the burdens of our revolution. It was one of her favorite maxims that their services would be better estimated when the blessings won by their toil were more widely diffused and more fully realized. 
Could she have seen through the vista of future years a band small, feeble, and hoary, yet bending less beneath the burdens of age than those of poverty, going forth like the widow of Zarepta to gather sticks to dress a handful of meal that they might eat it and die, she would scarcely have been convinced that these were the defenders of her country. Had she seen in vision a mother redeemed from servitude by the blood of her sons, yet withholding from their necessities a scanty pittance, till by far the greater number of them had sought refuge where wounds fester no more, she would not have acknowledged such an emblem of the land that gave her birth. The place of her residence had furnished many of those veterans who, during a war of eight years, had rarely tasted the charities of home and sweet domestic life. Some had fallen while the fields were sown with blood. Others had returned to share the blessings of their harvest. A few survived with broken frames and debilitated constitutions, living spectacles of woe to their disconsolate families. To these, that charitable lady extended her unwearied friendship, medicine for their sicknesses, food for their tables, and condescending kindness to their sorrowful spirits, she distributed with that judgment which accompanies a discriminating mind. One of these unfortunate beings, who frequently came to sit an hour with her when she was at leisure, used to style himself the captain of her band of pensioners. He was a man of powerful frame, strong features, and ardent character. His good right hand, which had so often toiled to procure bread for the lambs of his household, had been cleft from his body by a saber as he raised it to ask for quarter in an unsuccessful combat. A crutch, which his left hand had painfully wrought out and inscribed with the date of his last battle, supplied the loss of a limb which had been amputated in consequence of a neglected wound. Pain, sickness, and the untold miseries of a prison ship had destroyed the vigor of a muscular frame and given the wrinkles of age to one who had not seen half a century. Madame L. listened with interest to his narratives and often wondered at the elasticity with which his spirit soared above the ruins of his frame. One morning, as he was seated with her, his only hand resting upon the crutch that stood by his side, he said, I should take more pleasure in coming to this house, madam, if I could but forget that the traitor Arnold used to reside in it. I don't like to sit in seats where he sat. I'm sorry, Anderson, replied the lady, that any such image should interfere with the comfort of your visits. I have no particular satisfaction in retracing the connection of Benedict with our family. He was received by my husband more from solicitations of a widowed mother than from any prepossessing traits of character. He evinced at the age of 12 those qualities which distinguished his manhood. He possessed a courage and contempt of hardship which would have been interesting had they not been associated with dispositions delighting to inflict pain. His intellect was rapid and powerful, but he was impatient of control and devoid of integrity. I remember him, said the soldier, in his boyish days. He loved to cut young birds to pieces and to laugh at the mourning of their parents 
and to torture everything that was weaker than himself. There's nothing that I check my boys sooner for than cruelty to animals. It'll make you like Arnold, I say to them, and no traitor shall be son of mine. I once met him when a boy at the mill, where we both came with corn. He quarreled with the miller for making him wait, and then amused himself by clinging to the wheel and going with it fearlessly as it turned in the water. I wondered at his dangerous sport and his bold words. I knew not then that I should live to see him strive to plunge his country into perdition. The lady, ever intent to find some soul of goodness in things evil, replied, Arnold possessed courage and presence of mind to an eminent degree. At his unsuccessful attack on Canada with the lamented Montgomery, he displayed superior valor. You know also that he sustained extreme hardships in his march through the wilderness from Kennebec. Beside the labor of traveling over pathless mountains and swamps, he and his men were reduced to the necessity of feeding on the vilest substances, even on the remnants of their own shoes. That he possessed active as well as enduring courage has often been proved. In his battle with Sir Guy Carleton on Lake Champlain, after signalizing his valor, he was so solicitous about a point of honor as to prefer blowing up his own frigate to striking the American flag to the enemy. His radical faults were want of feeling and of moral principle. His fondness for pomp and splendid equipage led him to the meanest acts of fraud when in command at Philadelphia. His vindictive spirit never forgave the reprimand which was there given him by Washington in pursuance of the decree of the court appointed to investigate his conduct. From that period, revenge and treason employed his meditations. He probably procured the command at West Point with the deliberate design of delivering to the foe that rock of our military salvation. Anderson, who could scarcely endure to yield the traitor that measure of fame which he had earned, felt particularly uneasy to hear it from lips that he revered, and answered with warmth, I've heard his courage doubted, madam. At Saratoga, where he so madly defied danger, he was known to have been intoxicated. I recollect how angry he was at the Battle of Bemis Heights, because the command was not given to him instead of General Gates. He came upon the field in very ill humor and brandished his sword so carelessly that he wounded in the head an officer who stood near. Then, plunging foolishly into the most perilous scenes of action, he had his leg fractured, and I heard the surgeon of the hospital say that he was so peevish and furious at his confinement and pain that no one liked to be near him. Madame L., perceiving that the object of Honest Anderson's aversion bade fair to monopolize his whole visit, made an attempt to change the current of his thought. There's a story, she said, which I always hear from you with particular satisfaction. I refer to the Battle of Bunker Hill, which you may perhaps recollect you've not described to me for a very long time. The expression of the soldier's face suddenly changed. Debility and poverty vanished from his mind. His tall form was raised erectly, and his tone became more free and bold as he recited his first feat of arms. 
The last minstrel events not more of a warrior's pride when he exclaimed, For I have seen war's lightning flashing, seen the claymore against bayonet clashing, seen through red blood and the war horse dashing, and scorned amid that dreadful strife to yield a step for death or life. You will remember, madam, said the soldier, that it was warm weather for the month of June when the action to which you allude took place. It was on the evening of the 16th, and we were ordered to march to Bunker Hill. It had been rumored that the British troops intended to take possession of it, and we were directed to prevent them. People say now that Prescott made a mistake and fortified Breed's Hill instead of Bunker's, but the name is of little consequence as long as the victory remains. We marched in perfect silence, lest we should be discovered by some of Gage's sentinels. But some of us could not refrain from cursing the vile wretch who was cooping up the distressed Bostonians like lambs in a quick-set hedge. We did not arrive on the ground till near midnight. Then we commenced our labors, and it seemed as if the Almighty prospered us. Before daylight, our fortifications were completed. At dawn, the British saw with great surprise what had been done so near them without their discovering it before. Perhaps the evil-minded Saul was not more dismayed when the stripling David displayed from a neighboring hill the spear and the cruise of water which he had stolen from his head while he slept. They acknowledged that the Yankees could work well and afterwards found that they were able to fight as well. Early the next spring, when we threw up fortifications with great dispatch on Dorchester Heights, General Howe, on discovering them the next morning through a thick fog, which like a vessel looming at sea made them appear larger than they really were, struck his forehead in great wrath, exclaiming, What shall I do? These rebels do more in one night than my army can accomplish in weeks. But I beg pardon, madam, for wandering from my subject. As soon as our entrenchments struck the eye of the British, a terrible fire opened upon us from Copse Hill, the warships and floating batteries, so that we might pick up shot and bombs wherever we turned. We were much fatigued after the severe toil of a sleepless night, but none of us could think of taking a rest. And what was worse, we were poorly supplied with provisions. I can see at this moment General Putnam moving round among us and animating every man who drooped by his bold and cheerful voice. All night he was in the midst of our labors, directing and bearing a part. While the morning was yet gray, a detachment of somewhat more than a hundred men was dispatched under Captain Knowlton to take the post on the left hand of the breastwork. I knew not as I hastened on with them what a dangerous station it would prove. Yet if I had, I should not have drawn back, for my heart was high. When we reached the spot, we were employed in placing one rail fence parallel with another and filling the interval with the new-mown hay which strode the field, that field where men were soon to lie thick as herbs beneath the sharp scythe. In the course of the forenoon, a few more soldiers arrived increasing our numbers to about 1,500. We made but a scanty dinner, though those of us who had watched all night and got no breakfast were rather sharp set. Yet it seemed as if no man thought of food or of rest 
so full was his heart of those liberties which he was about to defend. At one o'clock, a thick, dark smoke spread over the skirts of the hill. We had scarcely time to explain, see, Charleston with its fair houses and beautiful spire burning, ere we saw our foes marching toward us. Soon the smoke of the town and that of the cannon mingled, rising in heavy volumes toward the sky. Prescott flourished his sword till it cast a gleam like lightning among us, and Putnam's voice thundered hoarsely, Remember Lexington! Ah, said the lady, it was at the report of the bloodshed at Lexington that, like the Roman Cincinnatus, he cast the plow from his hand and, leaving his unfinished furrow, rode in one day nearly 70 miles to join the American camp. Washington repeatedly paid high tribute to his bravery and his virtues. Smiling at the praise of his favorite general, the veteran proceeded. Knowlton, also the commander of our little band, was a lion-hearted man, and his lieutenants did their duty bravely. Colonel Stark, with his New Hampshire backwoodsmen, took deadly aim as if in their own forests. The British lines, partly wrapped in smoke, marched up with colors flying. At their head came Generals Howe and Pigot, with a contemptuous yet noble demeanor. 3,000 well-disciplined men followed them, supported by field artillery. First marched the grenadiers with their lofty caps and glittering bayonets. We were commanded to reserve our fire until they were within a few yards of us. When they reached that spot, it was wonderful how many plumed heads fell. Dismayed at our furious and fatal discharge, they at length fled precipitately toward their boats. Their officers pursued, menacing them with drawn swords. With difficulty, they were forced to rally. A second time they came forward, fought with great valor, suffered terrible slaughter, and retreated. The officers who forced them a third time to charge said to each other with melancholy countenances, it is butchery again to lead these brave fellows to that fatal spot. General Clinton stood with Burgoyne upon Copps Hill, gazing through his spyglass to see the chastisement of the rebels. But when he marked movements of distress in the British lines, he flew to join them and was seen hurrying with distracted steps to unite with Howe and his council. Then they increased the fire from their ships of war, changed the position of their cannon so as to rake the inside of our breastwork, and advanced with fresh resolution, attacking our redoubt on three sides sides at once. The carnage became dreadful. At this important crisis, our ammunition was exhausted, and that decided the fate of the day. Could we but have obtained the materials of defense, the British would never have driven us from that hill. Perhaps they might have buried us in its bosom. You know, madam, our redoubt was lost. I never can bear to say that we retreated or that the English took it, but it was lost by the fortune of war. When it was found necessary for us to retire, the enemy attempted to force our little band from the rail fence in order to cut off the retreat of the main body. This they found no such easy matter. We fought till not a cartridge was left and then gave them a parting salute with the butt end of our muskets as they leaped into our entrenchments. 
Half our number lay lifeless or wounded among us, yet even the dying forbore to groan, listening for our cry of victory. Four comrades were shot beside me. Their warm blood poured over my feet. One of them was my brother, whom I loved as my own soul. Falling, he said, here are yet three cartridges. Take them and God be with you. Strange as it may seem, I, who could never from my infancy see him suffer pain without sharing in it, took the cartridges from his quivering hand and paused not a moment to mourn. I cannot tell how many times I fired with the same aim that I've taken at the fox in his speed and the pigeon in the air when they have fallen. My musket burst and I snatched another from the dead hand of a comrade. The Almighty have mercy on the souls who were sent by me to their last account. When we were compelled to retire, not having a round of powder left and being unprovided with bayonets, our only path was over a neck of land where we were exposed to a crossfire from a man of war and two floating batteries. Our loss in that perilous combat was less severe than could have been expected and would almost have been forgotten had not the brave Warren fallen. He was a godlike man and the idol of the people. He had performed prodigies of valor that day, seeking the front of danger. After the musket shot struck him, an elegant man in the uniform of a British officer was seen to withdraw his arm from that of General Howe and run towards the fallen with great rapidity, waving his sword to disperse the regulars who followed him. He bent over General Warren and said in a tremulous tone, my dear friend, I hope you are not much hurt. The fallen hero lifted his glazed eye to him and faintly smiling expired. This officer was Colonel Small, who had been much in this country previously to the war and had formed many friendships here. He was once so near our redoubt during the battle that a line of marksmen took aim at him, perceiving by his uniform that he held rank in the army. Putnam saw them and striking up the muzzles of their pieces with his sword exclaimed, for God's sake, spare that man. I love him as a brother. I think I can hear at this moment the voice of my old general so bold and loud. Notwithstanding his rough exterior, he had a tender heart for the wounded and the prisoner. I knew him, said the lady, as a friend of my husband and occasionally our honored guest. He had a kind and generous nature, scorning dissimulation in all its forms. Though he possessed valor, which even in the language of his foes made him willing to lead where any dared to follow, his energetic soul was gentle in its affections and easily moved to pity. I find we are always ready to recount the virtues of those who have aided in delivering our country, yet we ought not to forget the merits of our enemies. Were any in the British lines peculiarly conspicuous during this battle? Madam, answered the veteran, had they shown less courage, we should have deserved less praise. Howe was in all places and in the midst of everything, always animated and collected. He was wounded in the foot, but disregarded it till the action was over. Major Pitcairn, who was so active at Lexington, 
distinguished himself here. At the taking of the redoubt, he was one of the first to spring upon our breastwork. The day is ours, he shouted with a clear, glad voice. He had scarcely closed his lips ere a ball passed through his body. His son, Captain Pitcairn, a fine young man, caught him in his arms as he fell and bore him to the boat where he soon died. The enemy complained of the great proportion of valuable officers who were that day fatally singled out by our marksmen. Ninety were among the slain and wounded, some of them the flower of their army and nobility. General Gage himself confessed a total loss of nearly 1,100. Among us, those who died upon the field of battle or soon after amounted to about 130. More than twice that number were wounded. The whole of these, including prisoners, fell short of 500. We were defeated solely by the want of ammunition, and when we retired, were obliged to leave several pieces of artillery behind us. It was a stirring time, madam, and everything was well enough except our being obliged to retreat. I always wished to leave that out of the story. It was a retreat, my friend, she answered, which produced the effect of a victory. This was a battle where the vanquished seemed to reap the harvest and the victors to mourn. It might almost be styled the Thermopylae of our revolution. It raised the doubting spirit of our people and taught them confidence in the resources of our own strength. Those who retained possession of the field were humbled at the gallant bearing of undisciplined troops and depressed at the magnitude of their own loss. It was the first time that they had seen military skill and the terror of a royal name bow before the rude enthusiasm of liberty. It was a difficult page in the lesson of humiliation. For my own part, I have never since looked upon that green hill or at the tomb of the warriors who sleep in its bosom without numbering them among the silent but powerful agents who influenced our destinies as a nation. Thanks for listening. You can download and read all of Lydia Sigourney's Sketch of Connecticut 40 Years Since for free at Google Books or at internetarchive.org. And to hear more great Connecticut history podcasts, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg through your favorite podcast app. For great Connecticut history stories in print, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored magazine at ctexplored.org. And to receive a free reader-friendly blast from Connecticut's past in your mailbox every day, visit and subscribe to todayincthistory.com. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us again next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.